Close Horse is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Gentle Vibes, a vintage shop for the psychedelic mind, formerly inside jeans and Hamtramck with a new Detroit location coming soon. Picnic Wear, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and deadstock textiles. Picnic Wear strives for minimal waste but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Find Picnic Wear on Instagram at Picnic Wear, and that's wear, W-E-A-R, and at www.picnicwear.com. No Flight Back Vintage, bringing fun new life to old things. Always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope-ass shit for dope-ass people. See more on Instagram at No Flight Back Vintage. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Wide-Eyed Vintage, truly covetable vintage curated in Minneapolis, Minnesota, giving each piece lifetimes of wear beyond the life it has already lived. See more on Instagram at wide underscore eyed underscore vintage. Shop Journal Vintage, specializing in upcycled, handmade, and vintage fashion for all genders. Owner Laura makes each piece by hand with love in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, with an emphasis on upcycled menswear, tie-dye, modern jewelry, cottagecore collars, and everything in between. Shop Journal makes pieces they love and hopes you will too. Getting dressed should always be fun. See more on Instagram at shop underscore journal. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer, but she is also a radical feminist micro business. She's the one woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing for you. Or option two is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. For inquiries about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. Old Flame Mending helps you keep your clothes intact through clothing repair, 
visible mending, and tailoring. Through extending the life of textiles, Old Flame Mending makes your pieces not only wearable and functional again, but also unique and beautiful. This mending duo is based in Pittsburgh, but they take mail-in mending orders from anywhere in the U.S. For more information, visit them at oldflamemending.com or follow them on Instagram at oldflamemending. Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that knows way too much about tush tags. Don't worry, you'll learn about them too. I'm your host, Amanda. You know what? I'm not even going to tell you what this episode is about. I mean, you probably looked at the title already, so you know, but you know, just in case, like, let's let it be a surprise. <laughs> Why not, right? I will tell you that if you're in the Clothes Horsing Around Facebook group, then you already sort of know what today is all about. So you might want to consider joining, I'm just saying. (laughs) Okay, first things first, let's thank our newest Patreon supporters. Sophia Sanders is a geologist, thrift store queen, and level one environmentalist. And this is according to her Instagram profile. And she got engaged this summer. So belated congratulations from all of us anti-brunchers. Also, Sophia wrote an amazing review for the show on Apple Podcasts. So she's just like giving us so much love right now. Thank you so much, Sophia. Also, Jackie Powers. And Jackie is a t-shirt designer, but she's also an incredible artist and she collects dolls. And (laughs) you should check out her art on Instagram. It's at Powers of Jack, and that's spelled J-A-C. She's going to be a guest on an upcoming show about graphic tees because, you know, they've been on my mind lately, especially, you know that, if you've been listening to the department where we talked about feminist tees ad nauseum. So look for that episode to come next month. Thank you so much, Jackie. If you've been thinking about joining the Patreon, now is a really good time because... This month, in addition to all of the other rewards, you'll get a free Anti-Brunch Society pin and a membership card. You can learn more of what Patreon is all about and what you might get for your membership at patreon.com slash podcast. Also this month, if you want to support the pod but you don't have the cash, just write a review on Apple Podcasts and I'll send you an Anti-Brunch pin too. Just send me the screenshot or I'll probably have already posted it and ask someone to claim it and then you'll just message me on Instagram. It's that easy. And you know what? If you don't want to do either of those things, which is totally fine too, the best way you can support Close Horse is by listening to the show. So thank you for giving me your ears once again for another hour, hour and a half, two hours. Who knows how long this episode will be when I'm done, right? (laughs) Do you hear that sound? It's the Clothes Horse Hotline ringing, and it's our friend Rita, a.k.a. Panty Witch. Hi, Amanda. It's Rita, a.k.a. The Panty Witch. I was just listening to your episode about drops and e-commerce stuff, and I do drops personally because I am not techy enough to set up a website, and every time I do, I look into it, and everyone has something to say about, like, 
Shopify. I don't know. Etsy really scares me seeing all the things that they've gradually done to makers. So I'm like, oh, don't really want to give my money to you. Thank you. Um, so I just do it through my Instagram and I do do drops just so it kind of keeps it so I don't have to respond to things from months back and I'm not selling out, but I don't love doing, I don't know, there's pros and cons of it, but hearing about your idea to start like an e-commerce sustainable website was like my wet dream. Oh my gosh, please do that because I don't want to have to figure out how to set up a website. I probably will, but um, but it would just be really cool so that people could know what they're shopping for is ethical. Like, I think that a lot of people think that hopping on Etsy is like, oh, it's all these, like, makers. But, like, it's a lot of stuff from China and stuff. Not that China's bad. Just stuff that's not ethically made. Um, and so I think people just have assumptions. So, yeah, please, please do that. That would make my 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 life no not really but you know that would that would make me very happy i would love to hear you pursue that and just yeah thanks bye thanks for calling rita you know rita brings up a really good point that i totally missed on the last episode some makers are using the drop model to sell via instagram because they don't want to deal with the expense slash work of building a website and They don't want to give away money on transaction fees because, and this is really important for me to remind you of like over and over again, makers and sellers are trying to make a living out there, you know, and for the amount of work they're doing, they are making very little money. Let me tell you, I've had a lot of conversations over the past few weeks with a lot of small makers and designers, and most of them are not even paying themselves a living wage. So Every cent counts right now, you know? I also wanted to add that, yes, I'm definitely going to continue to work on this idea of a new selling platform. I was reading this week, it was like perfect timing somehow, that now Jeff Bezos, aka Amazon, is looking to create a new version of Shopify because, you know, he's worried that the company is stealing market share from Amazon because, you know, Amazon is now entitled to all the money in the world, (laughs) Anyway, this made me think more than ever that this has to happen because we can't change the world if people who are making things ethically and sustainably can't actually make a living doing it. So I'll probably be talking about it more in the future. And I plan on really putting the ideas on paper, not real paper, you know, a Google Doc (laughs) in the next few weeks because it's mostly so far just been like a lot of conversations with Dustin. And I really just want to like nail down exactly what I want to do because I have big ideas as always. I will say once again that I am looking for someone who is an engineer who could help build the initial version of the site. The catch here is that they would be mostly doing it for free slash equity until we can make some money. So I guess it would have to be someone who's like really passionate about the idea, but also already gainfully employed. It's a lot. It's a big wish list, right? So if you know someone, send them my way. And speaking of computers and Shopify, Rebecca called to set us straight on all of this tech stuff. And it's fascinating. You're about to learn so much. So get ready. Hi, Amanda. It's Rebecca. Um, this is a very going to be a very weird message. And it might be a couple of messages because very long and boring topic. Um, and people probably don't care, but I kind of feel like you might care. 
Um, so I don't work in fashion. Um, my loan credential is I was the worst holiday employee at an anthropology like 10 years ago. Um, but I'm a software engineer. And so I was listening to the last episode and you were talking about how frustrating it is that you can have something in your cart and then it will just disappear before you check out. And I was like, oh, my God, this is my moment. I've never worked at Shopify. I've never read Shopify source code, so I can totally talk about this. Um, but I've been to enough conferences where Shopify people have spoke, and, like, I can kind of guess how things are working there. So I'm pretty confident, but, like, I can guess how uh, what's going on. So, like, even if most people don't necessarily know like what a server is, we've probably seen like server error, cannot connect to server, or like something on the internet. Like specifically, like when you're trying to like buy something or connect to something that's going to be like a really high volume event that a lot of people are looking forward to. Um, like you know that that just means that your computer can't connect to the computer that has the information that you want on it. So. A big part of the service that Shopify provides to small shops is making sure that doesn't happen. Um, a server can only serve a limited number of connections, and servers are one of the primary costs of running a website. Especially for like brands that do drops, they need a ton, a ton of connections on drop day, but then the rest of the time, it's probably pretty chill, and the numbers of servers they need is like way, way less. It would be like bananas way expensive for small shops to scale their own server infrastructure. So Shopify runs a bunch of servers on behalf of everyone on the platform. And some days, you know, those servers might be serving a ton of connections for picnic wear, and some days it might be serving a ton of connections for salt hats. I don't think either of those use Shopify. But, you know, just like as an example, it's like, you know, it all kind of evens out when you're sharing your resources amongst a lot of different clients. Um, and so Shopify is in charge of making sure the platform is built in a way that everyone gets what they need and that we, the consumers, don't see those server errors. One of the ways that Shopify makes sure their traffic is like nicely distributed so that like we as customers don't see those server errors is by sharding their data, which is a very sudden word that does make me giggle, um, but it's S-H-A-R-D. Um, and sharding is when you take horizontal slices of your database and you store those slices on different computers so that everyone isn't trying to connect to the same server and like causing a traffic jam. There's really important data that everyone needs to know that goes on every shard. So like when we're talking about a store, I think we'd agree that every server should have the list of all the items and how many are in stock. That's super important. But then there's data that is, like, only important to a certain subset of users, and that might not be on every shard. So, like, your cart is mostly important to you. So, Amanda, I bet that if you and I each put something in our cart, we'd actually be talking to separate shards of the database that exist on physically separate computers. When you put a one-of-a-kind item in your cart, the server that my computer is talking to doesn't know about it, so I can also put it in my cart. My shard only gets updated when you check out, and then it falls out of my cart and I get mad. If Shopify let us both put the items in our cart and held it for five minutes, 
and we both checked out during those five minutes, that one-of-a-kind item would get sold twice, which would really suck. Uh, so, like, yeah, even though we don't see it, digital infrastructure is infrastructure. Everything corresponds to a space and memory on a physical computer. That's probably why Shopify people can get a little snarky when people ask them if they'll build a feature to let people hold their items in their cart. It's kind of like if you're working at a store in the mall and someone's like, are you going to move the parking lot closer to the store? You might be like, yeah, ma'am, um, I would like that too, but we're not going to like move the whole mall for our personal convenience. Like, it just, it doesn't work. They're two separate computers. They can't know about each other. Um, so you might ask, why did they decide that carts should be on separate shards? Or why the shards don't get updated when you add an item to your cart instead of when you check out? And, like, there's a couple of technical and business reasons for that. The first is that, like, carts aren't that important. People add stuff to their carts and don't check out all the time. And for a small business, if somebody's holding something in the cart and you can't sell it, that sucks. And, yeah, you can put a timer on it. But it's super easy to script. So if adding something to a cart is free and adding something to a cart holds the item, it's really easy to write a bot that just does that. And then when those five minutes expire, it picks, puts the item in a cart again. And it could just block the sale of the item indefinitely. Um, so, yeah. Carts, like, aren't that serious. So so we update the database on checkout instead of when you put something in your cart. But the other reason that you might have this architecture is because carts are actually super important. Um, and I don't have citations on this, unfortunately, but I've heard that uh, working on this problem of when an item should be marked as sold in the database is actually what made Jeff Bezos as obscenely wealthy as he is. Amazon could tell from their data analytics that once you added an item to your cart, you were just, like, infinitely more likely to buy it. Even if you didn't do it that day, like, maybe you do it later. You know, this is why, like, Uniqlo sends you all those, like, creepy stalker emails for items that you feel like you looked at, like, sideways once. Um, but, yeah, if you put something in your cart, you're probably going to buy it eventually. So they decided that the add to cart button should never, ever fail. It should never result in a server error. So to get ready for Black Friday, Amazon bought a bunch of servers because they were going to get all this increased traffic and they wanted to make sure everyone could connect and add stuff to their cart. And then after Black Friday, they were like, crap, what are we going to do with all these physical computers we just bought? I guess we could rent time on these servers to other websites. And that became Amazon Web Services, which is like really, really obscenely profitable. Um, I did a super quick check, and I don't think Shopify runs on Amazon servers, but, like, Netflix does. So even if you've canceled your Prime subscription, every time you watch Netflix or do a lot of things online, you're making money for Amazon. Um, and that's not to say, I think, that, like, if you hate Amazon, you should quit using websites that use AWS because everyone rents their servers from Amazon, Google, or Microsoft, and it's kind of like, I don't know, pick one's fine um, or not fine. But, like, so if you wanted to build a platform where small makers were, uh, were to sell one-of-a-kind items and customers could be really thoughtful about their purchasing, the best way that I could think to do that would be to have people put a deposit down on items 
that they'd like to purchase. And then on launch, a lotto would decide who the item actually went to. Um, I was actually messaging with Elena on Instagram about this, and she pointed out that some people would just put down a ridiculous number of deposits, which made me think that, like, you know, maybe you could combine it with the community site. So I think Rebecca's message got cut off at the end, but I'm going to say that I'm really glad to know that she and Elena were talking about this. (laughs) I also have to say, like, I like the idea of this deposit model, but of course, people would definitely game the system. So I don't know what the solution is here. I mean, somehow places like ASOS are working out that cart hold thing, but they're also a huge business with like massive inventory. So missing a sale for an hour is is not a big deal. But if you're a small seller, as Rebecca pointed out, that's really bad to have things on hold that never actually get bought. And I have to say, I'm a serial carter. I'm putting things in carts all the time. I'm thinking about it for like three days. I know you all are too. And I'm also very familiar with the nonstop barrage of emails from Uniqlo that's like, hey, remember that time like three months ago that you looked at an item and put it in your cart? Well, it's going to sell out, so you should buy it now. You know, plenty of retailers are catching on to this cart stuff. I think it's all so fascinating. You know, as great as e-commerce can be, it's also just so limiting for the smaller players. And After a certain point, the ability to sell online is both a blessing and a curse. I also just wanted to say that I'm so glad that Rebecca brought up the whole thing about Amazon Web Services and their data warehouses. I always forget about that, but the fact of the matter is that almost every job I've had in the e-commerce era has stored all of our sales reporting data in Amazon servers. I didn't even think of Netflix and all of these other services. I mean, it's... If that doesn't make you fearful about the sheer size of Amazon, well, don't worry, because I'm sure there's more bad news about Amazon coming soon, right? (laughs) This is also the most we've talked about Amazon on the podcast so far, which is kind of surprising, but it's also just like, I don't even know where to begin. I would have to do a whole series just about Amazon, and it's exhausting. Anyway, thank you so much for calling, Rebecca. I hope your message gets the wheels turning in everybody else's mind because it's definitely got me thinking and everything you told us is like what I learned for the day. So I feel so much smarter already. Thank you. If you, yes, you have something you would like to share or ask or teach us all about, please call the Close Horse Hotline. It's fun, it's easy, and it's actually a voicemail. (laughs) I would also argue Uh, and this is not hyperbole, I swear, (laughs) that it might be one of history's best inventions. Okay, that might be hyperbole. Uh, The number is 717-925-7417, and of course that number will also be in the show notes. Well, you know what? I guess it's time to get into the main part of the episode, so here we go. In the era before podcasts and any sort of digital music, I would listen to the radio a lot while I was studying or babysitting. And specifically, when I was living in Chicago, I would listen to a lot of the, like, quote, alternative radio station. And there was a morning radio show starring one of those, like, shock jocks, because it was the era of that. And his name was Man Cal. And it was mostly, you know, standard radio shenanigans, kind of annoying, honestly. But one day, there was a caller that I will never forget. Now, before I tell you this story, 
I have to officially state, and I will remind you of this again when I finish the story, that I have been completely incapable of verifying this story anywhere, despite hours of Googling. So I can't confirm that this story is true, but I will say that it just seemed so genuine at the time, and it stuck with me for years as an example of how fine the line between collecting and obsession can be, and how destructive that obsession can become. The caller was a woman, and she had been married. She had two kids. I want to say she was a teacher, but I don't know that part for certain. That part my brain may have added. And she was into Beanie Babies, right? This was the era of Beanie Babies at McDonald's. They were part of the Happy Meal. And don't worry, I'm going to give you more information about that later. So she really wanted to get as many of these Beanie Babies from McDonald's as she could get. So she started driving from McDonald's to McDonald's every day. Because there was a limit on the number of Happy Meals you could get. Because, you know, collectors were going berserk. And we'll talk about that more later, too. So she originally started this as sort of like a before and after work kind of thing. She might go to a couple McDonald's, then go home, make her family dinner, etc. But the obsession just began to build and build. And soon she was skipping work and just going from McDonald's to McDonald's every day. More and more Beanie Babies just throwing out the Happy Meals. Well, she lost her job after a while, right? And soon her husband realized that she was basically spending all of their money on these Happy Meals and she wasn't, you know, making any money anymore because she'd lost her job. So he left her. I'm sure there was a series of stuff in between there where he like gave her an ultimatum and she couldn't give it up, whatever. He left her. So now she had no job. She had no partner. And so she started keeping her kids out of school because she couldn't afford a babysitter. And she just wanted to go to McDonald's that were further and further away. So she would just keep the kids out of school, throw them in the car, and they would drive around from McDonald's to McDonald's all day, every day. At this point, she also had no time to cook. And her budget was getting a lot more limited because she was running low on money. So the kids would also just live on Happy Meals. They would just eat the Happy Meals. I mean, obviously they were buying way more than the kids could ever eat, but that was what they were subsisting on. Well, she was putting so much money into this obsession and she was already, you know, didn't have a lot of income coming in because she had lost her job. So I guess she was living off of savings, maybe some child support. She lost her house, her apartment, whatever her home was. I can't remember what that part of it was, but She had no place to live. She was homeless. So she moved the kids into the car. I remember her talking about how it was like a big station wagon. And so they lived in the car and they just continued driving around and driving around buying these Happy Meals and kind of just piling up them up in the car and just eat. That's like the food they all lived on. At some point, a concerned McDonald's employee saw this and put two and two together, realized that they were living in the car, that everyone was living on Happy Meals, that this woman was buying them obsessively. So she called, you know, Children's Protective Services, and soon a social worker appeared where they were, like, sleeping in a McDonald's parking lot, and they took the kids away. So this woman had lost everything, her job, her husband, her home, and now her kids, all because of her obsession with Beanie Babies. 
And that was the point at which she called the show and told her story. Now, as I warned you, I have no idea if this story is true or not. Over the years, I've, you know, I've wondered if it was real. Even though I felt at the time that it was very, very genuine. And time may have softened the details in my brain a bit, but I've been reviewing this story in my mind just like thousands of times over the years. So I think this retelling is pretty accurate to what I heard. Still, I always questioned the story, right? Even though it felt real to me because, you know, it was this like cheesy antics radio show. But I have to tell you that even though I have not been able to verify the story despite extensive attempts to over the last few weeks, after all the other research I've done for this episode, I now believe more than ever that it's probably true. (laughs) So here's what I can confirm. The teeny beanies were miniature beanie babies that were offered in McDonald's Happy Meals from 1997 to 2000. And though they were sold for about $2 each along with a Happy Meal, they were often sold for much higher prices on the secondary market after the promotion. They were incredibly, like all caps, incredibly in demand. 1998 was the peak of their popularity. It was an illustrious year in which there were numerous fistfights and arrests in McDonald's locations all across the country, all related to these teeny babies. For example, and this, I want to say, it was hard for me to narrow down the stories here because there were so many. From an Associated Press article, two women at a McDonald's restaurant got into an argument where a long line had formed for teeny beanie babies about 8.15 p.m. on Friday. That was the day the restaurant chain launched a nationwide promotion for the floppy stuffed creatures with names such as Scoop and Mac. A 52-year-old Green Bay woman was cited for disorderly conduct after she allegedly punched the other woman in the back of the head. Or here's an article from the Washington Post that I have to include because it takes place where I live now. In pastoral Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where the Amish still ride buggies, true. A McDonald's manager summoned police when teeny buyers got out of control. I responded and observed approximately 50 people standing inside, Officer Delene Brown wrote in her report. They said they were waiting for zip cats to go on sale. The employees said that the cat will not be sold until all of the doby dogs are gone and there were still over 100 dogs to be sold. There was also a ton of theft and scams involved with these, specifically these, McDonald's teeny babies. I found this article in the Miami Herald archives. McDonald's fired an 18-year-old employee after police arrested her on charges of stealing $6,000 worth of the wildly popular teeny beanie babies. The employee, who had worked at McDonald's since March, was booked into Palm Beach County Jail on petty and grand theft charges. Now, there are two things that I want to call out. First, most people confirmed that they were collecting these tiny beanie babies, these teeny babies, because they expected them to increase in value, because they were an investment. I mean, and we'll talk about this later, I would question where their interest shifted from an investment opportunity to straight up obsession, right? If you're getting into fights at McDonald's over this, and two... Like I said, the peak year of interest was 1998. McDonald's ran these teeny babies through 2000. So each year, their popularity declined 
as the amount that McDonald's manufactured increased. And this is something that we'll see happen again, so just put a pin in it. That idea that demand is decreasing while the availability is increasing is really important to this story. Let's go back to the beginning here. H. Ty Warner founded Tie Inc. in 1986. He's the inventor of Beanie Babies. And okay, I already learned something here because I always thought maybe they were called T.Y. Beanie Babies, but they're really just tie. You probably already knew that. I'm so uncool about Beanie Babies. <laughs> it does sound like he was always kind of a character. He began his career in the fabulous world of stuffed animals as a sales rep at Dakin Toy Company, which at the time he joined the company in the early 70s, was the largest manufacturer of plush toys in the world. And he quickly became the company's top sales rep, partially because of his antics. For example, when he was going to meet with clients, aka customers, you know, and buyers for retailers and whatnot, he would add a lot of drama by having them meet him outside the building and he would arrive in a white Rolls Royce. He would get out of the car decked in a full length fur coat and he would carry a cane. <laughs> it makes me think of like the character, like the icon character for Monopoly, right? In 1986, he had this idea that would completely change his life. Because at that point, stuffed animals were filled with, you know, stuffing, right? Cotton or synthetic, but they were like stuffed full and they were like really solid. He had this idea to fill them with plastic pellets, which he later called beans, because he thought they were more realistic that way. I, I don't even know where to begin there, but it's something that he has spoken about like his entire career, basically, how he felt that they moved and sat like real animals. I don't know. We'll just agree to disagree here, right? So he began to work on this idea on his own, but when his employer, Dakin, found out, he was promptly fired, you know, because he's trying to start his own stuffed animal thing, and I'm sure that went against the terms of his contract. Okay, before we continue here, let's take a brief time out to address a very serious internet rumor. No, Beanie Babies are not filled with spider eggs. Michelle of Gentle Vibes Vintage told me about this, so I had to check it out, of course. And apparently, that entire rumor was started by the Onion website Clickhole, and people believed it. The article was shared hundreds of thousands of times, and it alleged that the toys were filled with these, like, long, dormant spider eggs that were just starting to hatch, you know, like, decades later. Spider experts have assured the public that spider eggs tend to hatch in just a few months, not over a few decades. And once again, they're actually just filled with plastic pellets. They're not even filled with beans, okay? I thought they were beans. I don't know why. <laughs> now that I say it out loud, I'm like, yeah, of course they were plastic, right? But back to the story. So Ty was fired from Dakin, so he promptly began his own company in the suburbs of Chicago, and he got back to work on his new project. Each stuffed animal had a little heart-shaped tag that included the animal's name, birthday, and a four-line poem about them. See, I didn't even know this part. Now, lest you are confused, that tag, that heart-shaped tag, is not to be confused with the tush tag, okay? According to the 
Beaniepedia, that's a real website, the heart-shaped tags are called swing tags, while the tush tags are, quote, the small fabric tags that are attached to a beanie baby's rear end. Kudos on the use of rear end, which is something my grandma would call one's buttocks all the time. (laughs) And the thing about the tush tags is they can reveal a lot about the age and country of origin of the beanie in question, and it's a really big deal to collectors. Now, the Beanie Babies were not originally well-received by potential retailers. In fact, according to Ty himself, quote, everyone called them roadkill. They didn't get it. And I would argue, I also do not feel how the bean filling is superior. But, you know, this is a man with a dream, with an idea, with a passion, with a firm belief that this is better. So he worked hard and he persevered and he was able to get Beanie Babies into stores. Now, yes, I'm over here questioning this decision to fill them with these plastic beans, but I have to say that Ty was a genius of supply and demand. He understood the power of scarcity to motivate people to buy without thinking. And this goes back to what we talked about in the last episode about how the drop model motivates people to just like buy, buy, buy. So what did he do here? Well, First, he decided to price Beanie Babies at $5 each, meaning that they were accessible enough for just about anyone to get in on the trend slash craze, right? Next, and I think this is really important, he only sold them to small specialty shops and toy stores rather than giant chains, so like you couldn't find them at Toys R Us. This next thing is really important for sort of faking scarcity. He limited the number these shops could purchase, And then he engineered this very like tight-lipped culture at Thai Inc. Basically, there was like what he called a total information blackout to the public on things like how many Patty the Platypus toys would be sold or which stores would get to carry Baldy the Eagle. And this is important to talk about because a lot of the articles I read about obsessed collectors included claims that they knew someone on the inside at Ty that was feeding them info about what, when, and where new animals were being released. Was this true? I don't know. Of course, there is a possibility that employees just sort of enjoyed the power of being able to share this info with some fans. But there's also the chance that maybe, knowing that Ty himself was a genius of all of this stuff, that maybe he was instructing the team to strategically leak info. I guess we'll never know. All of these strategies created a sort of like mysticism around the toys because buyers never knew where they could find them. They never knew when they were coming and locations always seemed to sell out fast. So this led to customers shopping multiple locations multiple times a week in search of them. And when they found something, they wouldn't think about their budget or if they needed it or anything else like that. They would just buy it because they assumed they would never find it again. Same kind of thing happens to me at thrift stores, you know? But then Ty happened upon his biggest stroke of genius yet. He realized that if he retired certain Beanie Babies after a short period of time, meaning that they would no longer make them and they would no longer be for sale, 
it would create an even stronger illusion of scarcity. Of course, in reality, Ty was pumping out millions of these Beanie Babies, even the, quote, retired ones, in overseas factories. The supply was huge. It worked because after being retired, Beanie Babies that sold for $5 would go for $15 to $20, and some sold for as much as $13,000. Thus began the era of, oh my God, Beanie Babies are going to pay for college and retirement and all of our dreams to come true. That era, right? AKA Beanie Babies as the ultimate investment item. And to be fair, the stock market was and is out of reach for most Americans, but a $5 stuffed animal is an easy and accessible investment for everyone, right? Even children could get on it. And so that started just the Beanie Baby craze. And wow, do I have some stories from that era. Like it was so hard for me to narrow it down to just a few. For example, in 1997 at a market in Hartford, Connecticut, crazed collectors trampled children, literally children, like Children received bloody legs, bruises, and other injuries. Why were they trampling these children? Well, because there was a retired tie-dye Garcia bear in the area. (laughs) Also in 1997, a this is like one of my favorite stories too. A 77-year-old Chicago man named Ben Perry was dubbed the Beanie Baby Bandit after he stole 1,200 toys and hoarded them in a storage locker. He swore that he had legally bought them at a flea market, but he had no receipts or witnesses to the transactions. So guess what? The case went to court. Ultimately, he was acquitted, but I have to say it was all pretty sketchy. After announcing in April of that year that they were retiring a few key Beanie Babies, including Garcia, the teddy bear, Bubbles the Fish, another one named Digger, and also Radar, Thai company employees did an inventory check to just kind of see where they were with these retired styles, and they realized that they were missing a few thousand units. They received a tip that someone was selling stolen rare Beanie Babies at a produce market in Roselle, which is outside Chicago. So they hired their own detectives to look into it. So then the investigators, you know, they're like, do some surveillance outside this market, right? And they see Perry, the Beanie Baby Bandit, and some others unloading boxes of the stuffed animals. So the investigators followed him to a storage locker that he rented in Carroll Stream, where they saw him unload at least two boxes with the Thai logo very noticeably on the box. They questioned him, And he let them look in the storage locker. And you know what? The locker contained five full boxes of Beanie Babies and seven others that were empty. And he had $3,000 in cash on him. So it's pretty sketchy, right? I don't know how he was acquitted. I couldn't find any information about that. But, and obviously everyone is innocent until proven guilty. But this looks pretty sketchy, right? (laughs) Okay, well, how about this? At the border between the U.S. and Canada, Beanie Baby smuggling rings were just running out of control. According to an agent who spoke to the Seattle Times, quote, 
people are smuggling them in similar places where they usually hide drugs. <laughs> or how about this? A West Virginia man shot and killed a 63-year-old security guard over a dispute involving, quote, several hundreds of dollars worth of Beanie Babies. And here's another robbery story. Quote, he didn't want the cash register. All he wanted was the Beanie Babies. This is what a Los Angeles store clerk said after he was robbed at gunpoint for 40 bears. Quote, with the amount of money these things are getting on the market, it was bound to happen sometime. And then there are so many stories of robberies of gift shops where like, you know, like, I guess they were really more like burglaries of gift shops where only Beanie Babies were stolen. Then shop owners were like investing in huge safes and security guards just to protect the rare Beanie Babies. I mean, if you had never seen a Beanie Baby in real life, well, you might be surprised to see that they're just these $5 stuffed animals, right? Like if you were an alien listening to this episode. All this uproar of these like little stuffed animals. It's kind of crazy. Okay, what about forgeries? Because there were a lot of them, including this story from the New York Times. A woman named Lou Vigna recently had a peanut sent to her beanie repair shop in Warrington, Virginia. A self-described beanie doctor, she examined its suspiciously crusty coat of polyester plush and realized something was seriously wrong. Quote, the blue dye came right off, recalls Venia, who discovered that the toy was a much less valuable light blue peanut dipped in dark blue dye. I felt terrible telling that collector that she got a rotten peanut, Venia says. 1997, if you recall, was also the first year of the teeny babies at McDonald's. And you're not going to believe this, or maybe you will. McDonald's sold 100 million of them in just 10 days. All over the country, grown adults were fighting over toys with names like Pinky the Flamingo and Seymour the Seal. Don West, a former wrestling hype man, appeared on Beanie Baby infomercials, like on television, just yelling at customers to not, quote, let the opportunity of a lifetime slip through their fingers. I shared one of these clips in the Clothes Horsing Around Facebook group. So like I said, you might want to join because obviously we've got the good content over there. And uh, the infomercial is crazy. It's like belligerent and somewhat terrifying. And while I was watching it, it actually frightened my cats and I had to turn it down. But once again, this idea that like, listen, this is an investment opportunity. Magazines like Mary Beth's Beanie World popped up and that one, it's that publication itself, sold 650,000 copies per month. And it encouraged readers to use the toys as a, quote, investment strategy with topics like how to protect an investment that increases by 8,400%. So once again, so much hype about Beanie Babies being an investment strategy. In fact, the official Beanie Baby handbook declared simply putting away five or ten of each and every Beanie Baby in super mint condition isn't a bad idea. By 1998, the company was making more than a billion dollars a year in profit, okay? At a holiday party that same year, Ty Warner, you know, the founder, he was now a billionaire. He stood before a room of 250 of his employees and shouted, I've never seen so many millionaires in my life. But like all good things, we know the story so well, don't we? 
there had to be an end of sorts, right? One night in 1999, Ty announced the retirement of several Beanie Babies and nothing happened. There was no public freakout, no stampedes, no market swell, nothing increased in value. It was just nothing. And that night in 1999 where literally nothing happened was the beginning of the end. Collectors completely panicked and they they flooded eBay with just huge swaths of these toys. There was a massive surplus of Beanie Babies in the world at this point because like I said, despite the fake scarcity model that they were operating on, they were making millions of these, right? Well, actually probably billions at this point. Their value, which had all depended on this illusion of scarcity, plummeted immediately. In a desperate bid to save an incredibly like Titanic-sized sinking ship, Ty announced that all Beanie Babies would go out of production at the end of 1999. And you know what? Even that didn't work. So there's a book, which I haven't read, but I might have to, called The Great Beanie Baby Bubble. And it's written by Zach Bissonette. According to him, sales declined by more than 90%, and by the early 2000s, most Beanie Babies were worth just 1% of their original sale price. So that would be just $0.05 for the average $5 Beanie Baby. Buyingbeanies.com and other bulk purchasing sites began to pop up across the internet, and they offered $0.20 to $0.40 per toy, so they helped you know, stores that had all this excess inventory sort of get rid of it, people who had collected too many. Now these Beanie Babies like were being collected by these liquidators and then sold off to like claw machine operators and county fair carnies to use as prizes. The bubble burst so fast and so dramatically. People were still desperately trying to sell the allegedly like most valuable Beanie Babies and like The most iconic one, I would say, is the limited edition Princess Diana Bear. I feel like I need to talk for a moment about this, the Princess Diana Bear, not just because everybody's got Princess Diana fever right now because of the crown, because I think it was always allegedly the most valuable Beanie Baby of all, and I think the story of that one kind of, you know, it's like a metaphor for the entire Beanie Baby craze. So... In 2015, a People magazine article declared UK couples yard sale Beanie Baby discovery could be worth $90,000 and help them buy a house. Basically, the couple had found the toy at a yard sale for about 10 pounds and they had heard it was super valuable. So they listed it on eBay with the starting price of 90000 pounds, I guess, probably. And you can't blame them for doing this because there were rumors swirling amongst Beanie Baby collectors for more than a decade at this point, that this particular toy, a purple bear made to commemorate the passing of Princess Diana, was worth up to a million dollars. And it's true, the internet is filled with stories and claims like this. Now, Beanie Baby Collector website, tiecollector.com, saw this article, saw this eBay listing, something. They list the maximum value of the princess at $52. They issued a fraud alert about the eBay listing. Because the reality is that these Princess Diana bears have increased in value, yes, from $5 at the original purchase to the neighborhood of 30 to 75. Like I said, tiecollector.com was saying $52. And 
all of those prices kind of depend on the condition of both the tush tag and the swing tag, and also someone being willing to pay for it. Still, it's a pretty significant growth in value to go from $5 to $30 or even to $75, but you know, it's not $90,000. Also, the value of any collection, even beyond Beanie Babies, is, like I mentioned briefly, contingent on someone wanting to buy it, right? Not just people wanting to sell it. And that's another idea I want to revisit in a few, so hold on to that, okay? I can't talk about Beanie Babies without telling you about the Robinson family. Chris Robinson, who was one of the five sons in the Robinson family, made a short documentary about his family and their not-so-secret obsession called Bankrupt by Beanies. It's less than 10 minutes long, and I'll share it with you in the show notes. It's worth a watch. Trust me. His father became obsessed with collecting Beanie Babies after they debuted in 1993, and from the very beginning, he saw it as an investment in the future of his family. He assumed that they would increase in value enough to pay for his sons to go to college. Ultimately, he ended up spending at least $100,000 on Beanie Babies, a collection of at least 20,000 pieces. He would buy five of each he found because he wanted each son to have his own collection to resell. Now, at this time, because we're talking like peak Beanie Baby time, right? Most stores that sold them had a policy of one per family. So he would get his kids to bring their friends, like he would show up at school and pick them up. And then he would hand them each some cash and he would advise them to pretend that they didn't know each other when they went in the store so that they couldn't be accused of being a family and therefore they could buy five of each Beanie Baby. I found this amazing interview with Chris, the guy who made the documentary on Days Digital. I have to share some stories from it because they're just so good. The most extraordinary thing that happened was a friend going to the hospital because he ate too much McDonald's. We were hitting a few of them each day, ordering Happy Meals to get the teeny beanies they were packing inside at the time. I'm pretty sure he lied and just said he was sick enough to go to the hospital, but when an adolescent boy would rather be hospitalized than eat McDonald's, something has gone horribly wrong. And here's another one. My dad always had a man on the inside. See, I told you guys, this comes up a lot that would let him know when new stuff was coming in. I'm pretty sure they held a steak and tie because there were many times that my dad would go even further than usual and buy 50 instead of the usual five, all based on some hot tip he got about whatever new beanies were coming out. He would load up a Suburban with each neighbor kid he could find and head down to the local Hallmark store with a wad of $10 bills in his pocket. Everyone was instructed to not acknowledge each other and just get in and out as fast as possible. After we loaded up at one store, we would just head to the next and repeat the process over and over. Once again, going back to that idea that there were people on the inside leaking out release dates and information, it had to be happening. It had to be. Reading these stories and watching that documentary, it makes me believe the story that I heard on the radio years and years ago. I think that Beanie Baby Madness was that bad that someone could lose their job their husband, their home, and their kids. And both the company and the retailers were almost conspiring to create this illusion of scarcity and increasing value. Ultimately, the Robinson family never sold their Beanie Babies because the expected increase in value never happened. And so the 20,000 Beanie Babies are still highly organized in their house. 
They're kind of waiting for maybe someday the market to change. And I urge you to watch the documentary because you have to see the organization set up. It's incredible. And also the kids complain about being forced to help catalog it all as kids. I love it. And the Robinsons weren't the only people who were doing this, right? The media was filled with stories like this one from the New York Times in 1997. Kelly Flagg, 14, began collecting Beanie Babies as toys when they were introduced in 1993. She buys duplicates to trade, some of which are now valuable enough to barter for big-ticket items. She intends to sell the collection to buy a Corvette. Or there was another story about a woman who put her entire $12,000 life savings into Beanie Babies. But ultimately... It was all untrue, right? Because there were so many Beanie Babies out there and their value, it didn't exist anymore, right? According to economists David Tuckett and Richard Taffler, all of us, whether it's Beanie Babies or Bitcoin, we view a hot new financial opportunity as a, quote, fantastic object. Basically, it's it's like an unconscious representation of all of our wildest desires and dreams. Like that object will allow us to achieve all of them, right? These objects are, quote, exciting and transformational. They appear to, quote, break the usual rules of life and turn aspects of normal reality on its head. Basically, they promise something so huge that it's almost sad that we believe it in the first place, but that's how attached we are to our dreams. During a bubble like this, like a Beanie Baby bubble, for example, we formulate a collective hallucination of prosperity. I mean, it's, it's a lot of groupthink here, right? Where we all believe that we can buy these Beanie Babies or whatever it is, and someday we will have everything we've ever dreamed of. And it's like the more of us believe that, then more people believe it because it spreads like wildfire. And once again, when we talk about Beanie Babies, this specific means of prosperity was accessible to anyone of all ages or income because the Beanie Babies were only $5 a pop. Whereas like real estate or the stock market, which are also, to a certain extent, these fantastic objects, they require much more wealth to buy into. Now, today... The inventor of Beanie Babies, Ty Warner, is worth $2.7 billion. He is the 887th richest person in the world. He owns a fleet of luxury cars, a $153 million estate, $41 million worth of rare art, and he owns the Four Seasons Hotel in New York, where you can rent the Ty Warner penthouse for $50,000 per night. Years ago, a long time ago now at this point, at the height of his success, Warner told a fellow executive that he could, quote, put the Thai heart on manure and people would buy it. Meanwhile, Thai ink is still around, and a quick visit to the official website shows a variety of masks, backpacks, socks, purses, and of course, Beanie Babies. I was thinking today about this 7-Eleven that was near a former workplace of mine just a few years ago, and one day a rack of Beanie Babies just appeared in there. It was so weird. And 
it became a game to go in there with my coworkers and kind of decide which beanie baby we would buy for which coworker and why, or look at the birth dates on the tags and decide how they fit into like the zodiac, you know, in terms of astrology. But we never actually bought any. So beanie babies are not an isolated incident. Here's where I tell you that beanie babies, the idea of beanie babies, this fantastic object phenomenon, this group think of prosperity, it happens all around us all the time. For example, I mentioned already Bitcoin. You have massive hype gurus who make money just telling you about Bitcoin. It's just like that Beanie Baby magazine I was telling you about earlier. We've got think pieces all over the internet and Bitcoin might actually work out. I don't know. It's easy to buy into though, right? Okay, how about comic books? Dustin was telling me about how the industry intentionally tried to force collectability in the 90s. I swear, there's so many stories like this from the 90s that I think that Beanie Babies really created this environment, this like industry trend of collectability, I swear. He was telling me that they would make tons of limited edition covers. So like one issue might have four, five, or six special limited edition covers. And this would sort of manipulate fans into buying five or six copies of the same issue just to have a complete set. Of course, the value of these books was completely decimated as soon as the pages were bent or smudged. So these books were just squirreled away in plastic sleeves, never to be enjoyed. And there's something so sad about that, like to buy something and never actually enjoy it, especially if the value never increased either. And based on what I've read about the Beanie Babies craze, it was kind of a similar thing where people would go buy all these Beanie Babies, they would bring them home and individually wrap them in plastic. They would carefully cover those heart-shaped swing tags so they wouldn't be damaged. And then they would just carefully put them in boxes and put them away. It's not like someone got to carry it around or sleep with it or play with it or really even look at it in most cases because some people were concerned about sun damage. And Dustin pointed out something else that was really important about comic books that I think can apply to everything we're talking about in this episode. The comic books of the 50s through the 70s were valuable because they were seen as disposable at the time they were printed, right? So very few people held on to them. You'd read them, you'd toss them. And in that way, there were very few left 20, 30, 40, 50 years later, right? So they gained value in their rareness. But if something is being sold with the intent of just being a collectible, then can it actually increase in value? Because there will probably be too many of them in mint condition out there. So none of them will really increase in value that much if they do at all. Because the rareness is the value. And once again, this comes back to Beanie Babies, right? Because while they seemed rare and scarce, like there was all this work to create that illusion, the reality is that, you know, the company was churning out tons and tons of these. There were plenty of Beanie Babies to go around. Another example that Dustin suggested was Record Store Day. So stores will receive just a few copies of limited releases and resellers will go from store to store scooping them up, often because there are limits on the amount they can buy, just like Beanie Babies. 
and then they'll list them on eBay or Discogs at top dollar. Guess what? No one buys them. So gradually the price is reduced back to the original over a few months. So it's also kind of a foolish investment, which reminds me of something else, which are clothing collabs. And I'm specifically just this year alone thinking of two. One is the Love Shack Fancy and Target collab from this spring. And then there was a recent collab, like I want to say in October, that was The Vampire's Wife and H&M. Everything sold out really fast, like one, two, three days, because resellers were speculating on the value of these garments. So they would buy a ton, you know, go to the store and load up the cart. There was no limit on what you could buy. And everything appeared on Poshmark at double, triple the original retail price. Now, Poshmark is still filled with these items, and they are slowly getting much closer to the original price. I've like the Love Shack fancy stuff is already there, and I can see the Vampire's Wife stuff slowly decreasing too. I'm sure there are similar things happening with collectible brands like Ace and Jig. Uh, Elena, if you're listening to this, I would love to hear your experience with that. So this is happening in clothing all the time, and then. Who can forget sneaker culture, right? Because people have been making a living scooping up rare sneakers from this just like nonstop hype culture flow of collabs and special drops, and they've been reselling them. And this has been happening since like the early aughts. As far as I can tell, that market is still really strong. But as the economy continues to be more and more troubled, I wonder what will happen. And I just have to say, there's something extra sad to me about buying tons of sneakers, which, by the way, are just so toxic to manufacture, and they never break down in landfills, just to never wear them, but instead look at it in boxes or something. I'm I'm sorry. I'm just, just going to say it, but I find sneakerhead culture so depressing and possibly infuriating. <laughs> that said, some of these rare sneakers can resell at $100,000. And the sneaker resale market is allegedly worth $2 billion right now in 2020. There's a new app called Rally that helps people own pieces of some of these like more expensive collectible items, you know, like collectible cars and coins and jewelry and things like that. They're now including sneakers in this. Once again, it's this idea of investment opportunities for lower income people. So for example... Last week, Rally offered 18,000 shares for one of the rarest sneakers on the planet, the 72 Nike prototype moon shoe. Only 12 exist in the world. And all 18,000 shares were purchased by over 600 investors in just a few hours. And this just allows people to, who don't have much cash to buy into this investment, right? But once again, like, What is the true value of these sneakers in the future? Because it's contingent on a lot of stuff, right? One, people continuing to fangirl over Nike. Uh, People having the money to spend to buy a $100,000 pair of sneakers from these new quote owners. And the desire to buy them has to exist too. And it's, I mean, look at Beanie Babies, right? It's not exactly the best investment because the value of these items isn't very concrete. Like you can invest in gold and it might it might shift a little bit, but gold has continuously been valuable for a long time. But who knows about a pair of Nikes or a Beanie Baby, right? There's just too many factors that affect its value over the years. And 
they're not exactly needs, they're wants. So these are kind of the first things that degrade in value. I want to finish this episode with one last cautionary tale of collecting as an investment strategy. Although once again, I'm just going to say this. There is a line for all of these things we've talked about, whether it's Beanie Babies, comic books, records, clothes, Nikes. There's a line between I'm investing and I'm obsessed. And I think people pass over that line way faster than they know. And maybe they never know until it's too late. So here's my last cautionary tale. When I was growing up, I was bombarded with commercials for the Franklin Mint, both on television and in magazines. Like there was this magazine that would come in the Sunday paper every weekend. I don't know if it still does. I haven't seen a Sunday paper in a really long time, but it was called Parade. And at the very least, the back cover was always an ad for something from the Franklin Mint. And I also read a lot of tabloids with my grandma, you know, like the Star and National Enquirer and that kind of stuff, the Weekly World News. And they would be filled with ads for this Franklin Mint stuff and other companies that did a similar thing. Basically, the Franklin Mint and all of their competitors were hawking these subscriptions for all kinds of limited edition items like thimbles advertising products from a bygone era. Like maybe there'd be a Morton Salt thimble or a Brillo thimble or Gone with the Wind commemorative plates. Everything was commemorative. I think that's important to say. This is the adjective for all of these things. Commemorative spoons for different states or historic events. An entire Princess Diana series of dolls, well, I guess figurines you would call them, plates, spoons, more thimbles, you name it. Commemorative coins, miniature antique cars. I mean, it could go on and on. Franklin Mint guaranteed that these items would all increase in value. Like if you saw a commercial on television for any of this stuff, they would literally say that in the commercials. So people would buy this stuff because, you know, one, collecting is fun, especially if you're getting a new piece of the collection every month and it's like a surprise. Oh my gosh. I'm just thinking now, I was obsessed with trying to get my grandma to get me a Franklin Mint subscription for these fake Fabergé eggs. They were constantly on television. I guess now in retrospect, I'm glad she didn't, although I don't know, they'd be pretty nice to look at. Anyway, because, you know, collecting is fun, right? Especially if it's like cool, beautiful stuff. And as I was saying before, this was an accessible investment that you might spend $30, $40, $50 a month gradually over time to create this collection that might pay for your retirement. I mean, that's a hot deal, right? In fact, I'm going to go ahead and say right now that Beanie Babies and Franklin Mint and all of these other faux collectible markets are taking advantage of middle and lower class people who want to dream of a better future. They want to invest. They believe in these fantastic objects, but they don't have much money. And so they buy into these dreams that are really, they're doomed from day one. It's so exploitive and I'm getting angry just talking about it right now. So in reality, Franklin Mint stuff, despite being allegedly made by hand in small batches by skilled artisans, this is what all the advertising said, it was actually mass produced in China and very low quality. And By the way, Franklin Mint is now owned by Sequential Brands Corporation, a company that also owns Jessica Simpson, the line, not the person. That'd be weird. 
Joe's jeans, Heelys, which are the sneakers with skate wheels, and some other like fast fashion mass brands. So that's not an investment company, you know what I mean? (laughs) I want to end this story with a letter I found on a collector's website from 2012. And yes, it's about Franklin Mint. During the past 25 years, I purchased more than $47,000 in collectible silver coins and beautiful non-silver coins from the Franklin Mint for my retirement because I thought the scarcity and limited edition minting of these coins would drive up their value over the years and because I believe the silver content in the silver coins would also increase in value. Now I'm 64, I decided to sell these coins to a coin dealer who offered me $2,500 for the whole lot. He told me most of these coins were worthless, and the only coins that had any value were those with the silver in them. I was devastated because when I was buying all those coins, the people at the Franklin Mint told me these coins were minted in limited production and would be more valuable to collectors in the future. I called two coin dealers in Detroit and both said they had no interest in Franklin Mint coins and said they didn't know any dealers who would buy them from me. At this point, I'd be very happy to at least get half of what I paid for them if possible. Please help me if you can. And if you cannot help me, do you think I can sue the Franklin Mint and recover my cost? And if so, could you recommend a lawyer for me to sue them? (sighs) Substitute Beanie Babies for Franklin Mint and, and coins in the story and you've You've got the same story, right? The response to the letter was basically, well, you should have known better and sure you can try to sue, but the best you'll get is a discount code for more dumb Franklin Mint stuff. And the Franklin Mint is alive and well with a website hawking limited edition ornaments, jewelry, and knives. All that looks pretty terrible. (laughs) But the comment sections of this post were filled with similar stories of feeling exploited by the Franklin Mint. What really struck me was this comment from an anonymous poster, which I feel is the best way to end this episode. This whole damn civilization, these last 8,000 years, is like the Franklin Mint, a confidence game that makes a few rich at the expense of the rest of the world. It always comes down to capitalism, doesn't it? Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends, tell your neighbors, but only if they wear masks. I don't want any anti-maskers. And don't forget, if you leave a review this month, I'll send you an anti-brunch society pin and membership card. And most importantly, don't forget, breakfast for dinner is still the best meal of all. I also just wanted to take a quick moment to tell you all to please be nice to all the small businesses right now. I know that USPS and UPS are a oh, just a terrible mess right now. Please cut these sellers some slack. It's a tough time for everyone. Businesses are barely hanging on, just like by a thread. And now they're like lifeline to the customers is just falling apart. Your package will come, I promise. If it's running late, I suggest printing out a photo of the item for the recipient and making a card to go with it. It's, you know, it's a fun craft project and you should be at home anyway, so there's something to do. 
thank you to everyone who has shared our content or recommended us on Instagram. You know I love it. I love when you message me. I love when you repost. I love when you ask me questions. It's so awesome. I'm lonely out here. It's just me, Dustin, and our cats, so I love hearing from all of you. As I've said before, I'll say it again. If you ever want me to share a source for the statistics or information that I provide here or on the gram, just get in touch. I have so many bookmarks. (laughs) I'm not a journalist, but I'm very committed to providing you with accurate, true facts and information. And don't forget, if you have a question, an episode idea, or a story to share, please reach out. You can call the hotline at 717-925-7417. There's also the old-fashioned way, which is via email. That's the old-fashioned way if you haven't heard. Podcast at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram at Podcast. If you want to meet other Close Horse listeners, join the Close Horsing Around Facebook group. I know I mentioned it a few times here. And I'll share a link in the show notes. And don't forget to check out the department. I co-host it with my friend Kim, and we talk about trends, taste, all kinds of stuff, right? This week's episode is about that tired trope of millennials killing things. We talk about restaurants, Applebee's, Sriracha, the Limited, light yogurt, and napkins. And so much more. So check it out. Thanks, as always, to Justin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye.